לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation Ashimen, Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, Rabbi Barry Chesler, still on vacation somewhere in Massachusetts. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you, but we want to start off with some sad news. We are mourning with the whole Ramah community and the Rabbinical Assembly community and the loss of Uh, really one of the finest uh, scholars, uh, Rabbi Bob Goldenberg, who passed away uh, this week. Uh, he was a scholar in residence at Ramah in the Berkshires, a lovely, lovely man, uh, a fine, fine scholar. Just a word or two about him, Barry. Just re- we remember him from teaching. Uh, second month, he always came up. Uh, for 10 years, he was the scholar in residence at Ramah. Yes, he was really, what I admired about him is that he was a very clear thinker. He had this great ability to explain things in the way that you would get it, which, as you know, in Talmud is not always so easy to do. And um, he was very soft-spoken, and um, he was just an all-around great guy. I also had a connection with him from the Schechter School because he was on the One of the committees I was on for a couple of years at the beginning of my tenure there. And again, he really distinguished himself for clear thinking and being able to move things along well. May his memory be a blessing. We want to give a shout out also to all of our friends at Ramah. This, I think this is going to be the last Shabbat, but a special Shabbat shout out. We got... Well, you know, actually, we're recording this a little bit early, so... My kids will have already departed from <laughs> camp, but uh, but this is the, the you guys are hearing this just before your final Shabbat this kites kites uh, and we're all wearing Ramah t-shirts just we're by wearing our Ramah swag shirts today. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we have an amazing parsha this week. We should get a t-shirt. How amazing is it? This is an amazing parsha. It's it's not the most misfidence parsha in the Torah. That would be next week. But Shoftim v'Shotim. It, it gives us a few emblematic verses. We should just kind of touch a couple of those. Starting off, we'll just get warmed up here with Shoftim uh, v'Shotrim Titen Lecha. You should have judges and magistrates in you. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the Torah goes on to say, Tzedek, Tzedek Tirdof. You what, shall... do you think the, what do you think the double is? What, why do you think the... I like, I like the Rabbinic Midrash, Echad Ladin, Echad Lapshara. But, but I think the repetition... So translate, of... translate, translate, translate. Okay, I'm sorry, yes. Uh, one tzedek, one word means justice, pure justice, a, a verdict of guilty, not guilty. A second word, tzedek, means pesharat. That is to say, justice is achieved through arbitration, compromise, right? You, you both don't get what you want. You have to negotiate your deal. That, both of those are manifestations of justice. And the rabbis, I think, intuitively understand this through their interpretation of tzedek, 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 but it's, you know, literarily, it's just... Emphasis, emphasis, and more so, emphasis. 
What we have to add here, I think, is that what you're talking about really is civil law. That's when you can have compromise. Yeah. You can't really have compromise in criminal law. And I think that perhaps the, the piece about it that works for criminal law is that you can only pursue justice. Right? A lot of times when we are criminally wrong, we want revenge. Yes. We want to punish the person in excess of what they might deserve because we are so angry. And here the caution is not to go overboard. But I want to draw our attention to the verse that comes before, Verse that you're, not to, you're not supposed to deviate from the path of justice, and you're not supposed to show favoritism, and you're not supposed to take a bribe. And curiously, the bribe comes with an explanation. What does a bribe do? It, brought, it blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the words of the righteous. And I think that our concern with justice, and here I think is why the tzedek is repeated, is that you can only pursue justice through just means. Here in the Torah, the end doesn't justify the means. The means have to be just in order to get just ends. I like that a lot. I think that's a, a great observation because we are all the time inclined to, uh, to get the outcome that we deem just, and we're willing to, and all, all too often willing to do something exploitative or dishonest to make that happen. By the way, it's interesting you said about the, um, uh, you know, quite correctly, of course, that, that in criminal law, you know, you might want something that's, that's uh, you know, you're so angry or you're so, you're so wounded. This partial also has uh, the, um, the, the laws of the Irmi Klatz, the, uh, the city of refuge, when there's, you know, in, in Bible times, when somebody uh, committed homicide, the, the instrument, it was supposed to be a court, it was supposed to be a, an evaluation to make sure that the person was really guilty, and there had to be eyewitnessing, which in, in Jewish law generally, and the Bible in particular, eyewitnessing is the standard of evidence. Um, there was a trial, but the, the victim's family are the people who execute the death sentence. That's the goel hadam. So if, if, there's a, if there's a person who's convicted of like straight up murder, the victim's family are the ones who kill the person. But if it's an accident, like straight up an accident, the Bible's example is you're chopping wood. The, the rabbis are disagree about whether it means the metal blade flies off the ax handle, or perhaps the uh, metal blade is dislodged by whacking the tree, or perhaps a piece of the tree comes off and hits somebody in the head, whatever the case is, it was just an accident then the person who, who committed the homicide is not worthy of the death penalty, but they have to have some kind of uh, penalty and they have to go to the Ir Miklat, the city of refuge, and the Goel Hadam, the, the victim's family, cannot kill them. And if they did kill them, then that would be murder. But if the person leaves the Ir Miklat, leaves, if, if the manslayer leaves the city of refuge, then they're fair game for the, uh, for the Goel Hadam. You know, I mentioned this before, I think, in one of our talks, that, that I think Cain really, uh, Cain, you know, uh, is falls into that paradigm of, of a manslaughter because he, he, he has to live in exile. I think Moses also is uh, a manslaughter because he, he, in the end, leaves Egypt and, and goes to exile because Pharaoh is going to seek revenge for uh, having killed an Egyptian taskmaster. So... These, there are hints of this already in the Torah and hints of the fact that, that someone has a claim on you 
what I think is unique about the Ari Miklat, the, the cities of refuge, is that it understand it validates this claim, but it also protects uh, this because, as we know, accidents happen in life. Things terrible things happen. Go ahead. Right, and also in the discussion in in Matomase um, uh, at the end of the Book of Numbers, where we have the full blown description of the Ari Miklat, it's clear that. The, the laws are also designed to protect the land. Yeah. And what's important, I think, that we sometimes lose sight of is that the land almost has the status of a person in the Torah, that how we treat the land is going to affect how the land treats us and our ability to sustain ourselves or for our ancestors to sustain themselves on the land is predicated on their just behavior because the land takes everything, as it were, to heart and responds according to the way the Israelites behave on top of the land. So that's a good way to connect to the to another main passage in our amazing Parsha, which is <clears throat> the, the Hebrew king, the Israelite king, Kitavo el when you go into the land. And so the Parsha is really talking about, I think in general terms, ways of governing the land. We saw that with the first part with justice, the, 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 the next part deals with how you adjudicate matters. And here you have a sovereign, you have a king. Um, and uh, the, the king, as we know, comes out of the desire of the people. This really is the, the great plot of the, the book of Samuel, where they, they, want, they want a king. They want to be like everybody else. And Samuel is really, really annoyed with the people for, for, for what he just, you know, why, you know they, why are they going to uh, deny, you know, God here? Why do they want to be like everybody else? And you see um, within the book of Samuel, they're trying to work out these issues, but you're going to get a king. Som tasim alecha melech, verse 15, place upon yourself a king who will be chosen by God, from among your, your brethren. And then we get a series of rules that limit the king's power. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if you could just go into that and maybe some other facets of the, 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 the Hebrew king. Jeremy, you want to Sure. Is it the constitutional yep. checks and balances for this king, or, or what do you have to say about this? Well, you know, coming from, uh, from a, as you do, a, com, a, a common a monarchy, monarchy, constitutional monarchy. Constitutional monarchy. Uh, by the way, it's interesting, you know, you, you pointed out that the Torah says, som tasim alecha melech, and that, and that you shall surely place you know, that, that doubled verb, som tasim, typically means uh, this is exactly what you should do, and it's a point of emphasis, like perhaps tzedek, tzedek. Uh, but there's actually a classical, you know, Talmudic debate whether it says when you come to the land, if you say, let us be like all the other nations, then you may, then you can appoint a king or it means appoint a king. Like, is it, is it a directive to do this? This is a good thing. Or is it, as, as in the story of Shmuel and Shaul, uh, a concession to the people's foolishness? Like, they really shouldn't do this. But if they're going to do this, um, I, I tend to, to view it in that latter way, like the, the better thing is in the Bible's mind, the better thing is prophetic leadership. You have Moshe, you have Kohanim, um, who, who dispense out, you know, Torah. Um, but if that's not going to work for you, and it's probably not going to work for you, um, because in, in, so to speak, real life, there are political conflicts that can't only be resolved by just, you know, turning to Torah. Um, then you might need a more sort of robust political institution, and that's and that is the kingship. But the the Torah, I think, and, and certainly the the Book of Shmuel, is uncomfortable 
And even the stories of David, who David is, is probably the Tanakh's most beloved character, um, certainly the fullest character. You know, the Bible also doesn't shy away from noting that kings, they're greedy, they're self-aggrandizing, they tend to like other, other men's wives. Um, you know, they make alliances that are sus- suspicious. So that's true even of David and Shlomo, uh, who, who are on, on balance very beloved characters. So I think that Devarim is saying here, listen, you know, you may in fact, in, in the necessity of managing a state among other states, you're going to have rival, rival countries, you're going to have to negotiate with the powerful Egypt and Mesopotamia and everything. You may need a king, but I got to tell you, you got to watch out that the king not have too many wives, not ha- not accumulate too much money, not accumulate too many horses, and especially most important, the king should have be forced to have uh, write his own Torah. He has to write the Torah and keep it with him because the Torah is going to keep the king on the, as you said, the constitutional monarchy, the right path, and not be a despot because kings tend to be despots, but the Torah wants a, a king who is ultimately loyal to this religious system. I, I think that this is, this is such a fascinating par- passage, um, especially the, the last part that you mentioned, which is, you know, verse uh, 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 18, uh, he's almost, he has to have the, a copy of the, the book in his, in his garment, like, you know, Apparently, the legendary Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall always walked around with a, a tattered copy of the Constitution. And, you know, even, even a Supreme Court Justice, you know, has to consult the Constitution from time to time, actually, in, 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 the, in the document. I, I, I'm just wondering, Barry, you know, if you have any kind of reflections on, on this. In term, it's just also in terms of the limitation of powers or, or what, what kind of state is the is Deuteronomy trying to project to us? What what what? So, I, I think the the central religious problem, and we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, has to do with certainty and uncertainty in our religious and political lives. The monarchy as an institution stands for certainty. Certainly, the way it played itself out in the kingdom of Judah, you always knew who the next king was because it was the the eldest male left after the previous king had died. In the Northern Kingdom, they had a problem with succession. Um, the, most, the best way to become the king in the Northern Kingdom was to kill the previous king and then take the mantle for yourself. And I think what we have here is that the people want certainty, and that's with the king, because you know who the king is. God wants the charismatic leader. He wants to be able to choose the leader, and he wants that leader to be recognized by the people, and that's very difficult. It puts a, a tremendous burden on the people who are looking for certainty. I was struck, Jeremy, by your account of the three things that the king is going to do with the money, the women, and the horses. Why are those problems? It seems that they're problems because they are things that take a, the king away from proper governance. Right? They're not essential to governing the people, determining what is best for them. There are things that the king does for his own personal aggrandizement. And that, that's the problem. One last point here is that two of the great charismatic leaders in the Bible are Moshe and Samuel. And in a sense, they show the limits of charismatic leadership because of the problem of succession. So Moses was able to appoint Joshua to transfer his charisma as a word to Joshua with God's blessing. 
Shmuel had a problem because his two sons did not live up to the hereditary standards that we expect of a leader. And therefore, the king has to come almost as a result of the failure of Samuel as a person to fulfill his leadership responsibilities. So, you know, king, the king, the succession of the king thing is, is very interesting. And, you know, we know that they're that in real life, too. But, uh, you know, they're in the Bible. Also, there are rivalries. You remember when David dies, Shlomo and Adoniah are fighting over and some people go with Adoniah and some people go with Shlomo and, and Batsheba comes in with a brilliant answer. She's, she reminds David on his deathbed. You remember when you promised that Solomon would be the king, but it never said that anywhere. She's a very clever woman. Um, but, you know, I think that, I think the question of charismatic leadership, like who is it that has, the, perhaps the Bible would say that, that God endows with, or that we would say, you know, just, just has the mojo. Um, it, people's children often don't, right? Moshe has children, but Moshe's children don't, don't have the you know any kind of role that we know of and and Shmuel's children don't and Shaul's children Jonathan you know it's, it's very interesting when Jonathan in the Haftarah for Machar Chodesh which which we we read when Rosh Chodesh falls on a Sunday not not not, not this week because we're going to read the uh, the consolation Haftarah instead but uh, it, it's true it's true this week that Rosh Chodesh comes on Sunday um, but. Saul yells at Jonathan for uh, for favoring David, and he says, "You are a shame to your mother because your mother's your mother's he probably uses a, like a salty a salty expression for for your mother. Um, uh, you are a shame to her because her son is not going to get to sit on the throne, which is what we all want. We all want our children to sit on the throne, but you know what? In the Bible, it typically doesn't happen." It typically does not happen that people inherit true leadership, um, and more often, special people uh, go outside the expected leadership path. You know, it's interesting that the book of Dvarim really puts forward for us several different kinds of models of leader, and, and it's almost like the separation of powers. We were talking about the king, but we just also let off the parsha with the shofet, which also has you know judicial power. We have the navi, which is Moses which is the, uh, we're calling him the charismatic person. And of course, you know, Moses has his own quiet, humble charisma and, you know, just line them up on a, you know, against each other and, and ask, you know, I would take Elijah and Elisha and uh, Isaiah, second Isaiah. Yeah, these are, these are not quiet people, Jeremiah. These are, these are really uh, colorful, charismatic people. But you also have tribal leaders you know, what you don't have in the Torah is rabbis. <laughs> you don't have rabbis. And, and what you do have, of course, in Chazal is you have a new form of, of, of leader, and that is um, the person invested with um, Torah knowledge, knowledge of Torah and halacha, the ability to discern things and, and the ability to teach. And, and what's so fascinating is that the, the tradition gives us all of these different... Uh, models and and wants us to veer away from other models and that's a way to segue back into the parsha look at chapter 18 verses verses 9 through 12 okay you don't want to go to any magicians kosim ksamim maonen menachesh mechashef soothsayers and other kinds of charlatans shoel ov yidoni necromancers doresh et people who do the seances right to Avat Adonai Kolaseela, 
Those are disgusting. They're disgusting things. They're disgusting people. But you can realize why they're so enticing. You know, a couple of years ago, we went to, to see the Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You should go there. <laughs> they have actually Houdini's father's talus in a case there. It's fascinating. At any rate, Houdini, you know, was, was involved in this stuff. At least he tried to debunk them. And, and I think it was uh, during the, the, 20, the early part of the last century that people were just so, so enthusiastic about these things. They, they, they had parties and seances and it was just, you know, a lot of um, charlatans. They, they, they wanted to manipulate people. And I think you can get leadership from people who have authentic, legitimate leadership and you can get leadership from these people who, who want to manipulate you. I don't know if you have any comments. Do you think, do you think that um, the Torah, I, I know that Maimonides regards the Oven Yudoni as just straight up liars and charlatans, but do you think the Torah thinks that the, that the Oven Yudoni and all, all these soothsayers and necromancers and seance people are fakes or just forbidden? Uh, like They're just forbidden. I, I think that I may have read this in Yechezkel Kaufman, but the Torah never says don't do magic because it doesn't work. It's don't do magic because it's a betrayal of God. And this is the problem, that if you're living in ancient Israel, all these people running, I, I have to believe that most of the people who pursued these occupations, as it were, were faithful people by their own standards. There are always a few charlatans, charlatans, we have them ourselves, but I think most of them did what they did honestly, and they were mistaken. And it worked. And it's very attractive. You know, I had, I, me I mentioned my teacher, Rabbi Byron Sherwin, Zikwano Libracha. He said, there's nothing like a magic trick to get the attention of the people. You know, he thought that the failure of the conservative rabbinate is they, they didn't teach us magic at the seminary, they just taught us Torah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think again, today I seem to be coming back to this idea of uncertainty is we want certainty and we can't have it. And the Torah, and especially in Sefer Devarim, is crafting this way where we have to recognize the limits of certainty. All and right. We, yeah, that's, not, that's, not quite to, it for me. that's not quite getting it for me exactly because, um, I, I agree with you, by the way, that the Torah is not saying this stuff doesn't work. It's saying it's dark. And, and I think that the certainty thing is not quite getting it for me because I think that these practices are by definition into the realm of mystery or what in Harry Potter is called dark magic, something that is just, it's, it's, um, it's too spooky or maybe dark forces. And I think that the Torah, rather than seeking to direct us for knowledge to the realm of the dead, uh, into the realm of darkness is wants us to look at the light and wants us to look to for the, a, a Torah teaching that is illuminated and illuminating and unmysterious. I do think for myself as a religious person, I need some mystery. Um, I do need some of the, you know, some of the ways in which this is not just, you know, this is kosher, this is treif, put on your tefillin and, and whatever. I, I, need, I need some of that. But I, I think that the ov and the yidoni, who do work, who, by the way, play an important role in the story of Solomon, Samuel and Saul, 
um, they do work. It's just it's just trafe because it's dark. So it's interesting. You know, I'm thinking of the fact that that magic and folk magic really accompanies Judaism throughout Jewish history. You know, if you look at the the movie The Dybbuk, I mean, it's 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 such a beautiful, gorgeous uh, uh, depiction of this kind of thing where you you are trying to uh, exercise a, a demon from 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 the the characters there, and and it's just so haunting. And of course, this this captivated the imagination of of the simple people and even more sophisticated people. It was always like the the Kabbalists and the some of the you know the great the Golem, the Maharal of Prague. He put a he put the divine name in in the um, in the Golem. Um, but I think I think there's something else going on here, which is that the Torah's vision of the human being as a totally free individual, and that uh, the experience with magic and people who, who predict the future, fortune tellers, etc., they they remove your freedom from you because if they read in the tea leaves or in the you know the teacup, um, you know what you're going to do. All of a sudden, you your your freedom is constricted, and you 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 no longer feel that that the outcome of your life is based on your decisions, and 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 right. maybe that's a good segue into the verse. This is you know emblematic verses for twenty, Alex. Okay, Allah shalom. Tamim imadonai And along the lines, Barry, of what you said of certainty, if certainty certainty is not with the Torah, I'm here going to go with Jeremy. I'm sorry to gang up on you, Barry, but it's, it's not about certainty. Tamim I'm going to I'm going to go for wholeness here. Tamim. Tamim, in the context here, obviously it means something relating to magic. But in the way that we understand Tamim Tiyah, verse 13 of chapter 18, be whole with the Lord your God means don't be certain, but just be be be, be faithful, be walk, faithful. walk the path, um, and don't try to, you know, many years ago when I was working as a newspaper reporter, I sat next at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I sat next to um, the the uh, the mafia reporter, and he was a very interesting guy, um, Italian guy from from South Philly, of course, and uh, George Anastasia, and he he had his own like wise guy book, you know. He had he had a, a guy who had who had flipped and went in the witness protection program, and he wrote a book telling his story. And that 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 gangster said, um, everybody, you know, you you can't basically you can't you can't uh, cheat an honest man only when People are trying to get ahead, trying to trying to 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 somehow you know put one over. If you're if, if you're trying to scheme, then you're vulnerable to schemes. Tamim to me means just be a human being and don't try to access this superhuman set of knowledge. Okay, I think it's a little more than that, and here I think perhaps the shot helps because the follow up of the verse is that the land you're going into, all the nations are doing these things, yeah. right? They're listening to the Coast Meme and the Ma'onani, and it's working for them. But it's not your, your path. It's not what I have prescribed for you. And I just want to come back to something you said before, Elliot, that you know one of the conundrums of uh, a philosophy is the idea of free will versus God's omniscience, which you alluded to. Right? If God knows everything, do we actually have free will? 
And as far as I know, it's not been successfully resolved, so we're not going to resolve it today. And that's but, predetermined. <laughs> but again, and you know, I, I share your discomfort with my emphasis on uncertainty, but I, I think that there's a lot of life that is uncertain. That's the mystery, is that we don't know. I think, I think that, that we have to make works. choices. What? That's, where, that's why the, the word tamim works, because it says you, you need to, to function in your spiritual, religious, human life with all the uncertainty and certainty that you have. In other words, that, I, I always kind of re- recoil at the, the anima, amin be'amunah shleima. I mean, you know, I believe with perfect faith. What, what does that even mean, perfect faith? You know, we're all dented. We're all, we're all banged up a little bit. And, and everyone, you know, over, we, we certainly have our questions about, about the nature of reality. And so what the Torah is asking us here is, you be, you be yourself, you be, you be whole. Bring, bring it all, bring it, leave it all on the court. So to defend animamin, animamin is aspirational. It's not... Halavaisha uh, animamin. Halavaisha animamin. Yeah, that this is where I'm, I'm trying to get to perfect faith. Because I think we connect perfect faith with a perfect relationship with God. Yeah, but does it does does that concept even exist? Is there you know shalem means wholeness? You know, whole, broken, and all that. You know, we we've all done our homilies on this. Yeah, nothing... ain't play mood, that's what yeah, I. That's what I. That's 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 my bumper sticker. Okay. <laughs> all right. So so I mean, there, there's certainly enough to chew on in that in that pasuk tamim I know, I know we're, 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 we're limited. We can go on because we have so much material in this Parsha, but let's go to the end where in the beginning of the seventh Aliyah, we are, we are now talking about a little bit of warfare, laws pertaining to war. And, and, uh, and this is, you know, emblematic verses for 30, Alex. Okay. When you go and wage war, you really have to uh, sue for peace. Uh, so, so, and then maybe take us into into some of the the rules of war. And, and what is the Torah trying to do in terms of cultivating the um, the people here? Jeremy, you want to try? Well, I, so, I would say the um, the Torah here certainly, first of all, thinks that war is inevitable. Okay, this is not. This is not, you know, Isaiah imagining that there will be no no violence or damage in all my holy mountain. The lions will lay down with the lambs. Um, this is a recognition that conflict is is uh, inevitable, um, and the the temptation is to just simply lose any. Uh, you know, in this violent set- setting, this temptation is to simply lose any proportion or boundary. Um, if you if you were to say that, as the saying goes, "quote all all's fair in love and war," that means that there's you, that there is nothing ethical or unethical. Like all is fair. Anything you want to do, uh, anything that you find effective. We talked before about just and unjust means. The the uh, the claim must be that. It, all is not fair, and there are better and worse ways to do this. So the Torah does not think that you should be a pacifist. It says, listen, actually, you got to buck up and don't be afraid and don't run away. Um, uh, I know it's scary, 
And actually in the rabbinic material and tractate sota that, that treats this material, frankly, it's, it's, it's a little spicy there. It says, listen, you know, what does fear mean? Like you, you lose control of your urinary functions here, you know, um, when you when you see all those shields and you hear all those swords and it's, it's pretty scary stuff. So you can't be afraid. You got you got to stand up and, and be a warrior when necessary. But you can't destroy the land. You can't destroy the fruit trees. This is the source of the mitzvah of Baal Tashchit, do not destroy. And it's adapted in contemporary times for all sorts of environmental, uh, you know, uh, conservation type of, of activities. Don't waste, don't destroy, don't pollute. Here it means in war, don't destroy the fruit trees. Don't, don't you know, go overboard. Uh, uh, sue for peace with the cities that you have conflict in. Now, this is, I don't want to overstate it because it's a sue for peace right. and make them your slaves. If they agree to, if they agree to, if they agree to make peace with you, they have to be your slaves. And if they don't agree, then you can just slaughter them, which. Right. But we're talking here about Mohammed Mitzvah. Am so I correct? The, the, rabbi, the rabbis introduce a concept called Milchemet, Milchemet Mitzvah, Milchemet Rashut. Um, uh, obligatory war, meaning like somebody is trying to kill you and you're in a defensive war, or you are Joshua fighting the Canaanite nations, uh, versus Milchemet Rashut, discretionary war. I wonder exactly what discretionary war means. Can there be such a thing as you just choose that you think it's wise? Well, imperialistic war? wars, you know, David, uh, you know, expanding the empire, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what the rabbis say, but uh, in real life, I would hope that that contemporary societies don't say, you know what we need? We need to hop up some more land here. Um, and, you know, we, we need some more slaves. Let's let's choose to go to war. I think, you know, just... Uh, well, World War One is a classic example of that. Uh, what about uh, uh, Ukraine, Crimea? You know, these these are uh, not obligatory. Anyway, but but the, the point... So, that, you know, the, so the, 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 point, the point is that the Torah is trying to restrain what might otherwise be an anti-ethical or a non-ethical zone by introducing other ethical questions. And they include who you fight, the methods by which you fight, and who is on your army. Because the, we have the very interesting passage that they, they, get the, they, get the, uh, uh, they get the speech, whoever has betrothed a bride but not married, whoever has planted a vineyard but not you know, harvested with, with proper following the rules and everything, you go home because you don't belong here, which I think is, a, you are likely to in your, um, uh, uh, and, and, and otherwise, if you are afraid, um, you are likely to sap the courage of your fellow soldiers. So get out of here. Yeah, I mean, the, these rules and laws are, are, are important to us. And, and in a way, we come, we come to them with a certain kind of handicap because, you know, to, none, none of us, has ever you know put a uniform on served, and that's although we know people and plenty of people in our congregations certainly have been veterans and, and are active in the military right now, and and of course you know and I'm thinking about you know talking about these rules, of, and and having this conversation with you know our friends in Israel who, for whom this is a this is a daily reality. I mean we 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 are recording this on a day after some rockets were fired on Israel from the north, and and what kind of response. Which, which would be ethical, proportional, and also, you know, significant, send a message saying, like, don't mess with us, basically. And, and what our legitimacy is in, in talking about these things. These are, these are really complicated uh, questions. But uh, I'd just like to add two things but, here. Uh, the first one is that 
I think war as a human experience is most closely identified with chaos. And the Torah reminds us that even in chaos, we need rules. And the second thing to follow up on what Jeremy said is that I think the Torah's great concern here is that human beings not descend into wanton cruelty. And we have to remember the purpose of the war, ultimately, or our goal in war is to kill people. And it's hard to dress that up and say, well, there's a good way to do that and a not so good way to do that. But the Torah is reminding us that we have to be on guard, that we not actually be cruel. So I am struck by the law about the fruit tree. You know, you can kill the person on one hand. That's what war is about. But you can't starve them out because that would be cruel. You know, you can't cut down the fruit trees so that they have to come to you because that is cruel. So that, I think, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to wrap it up, but go, you do your last say. So I, I think that, you know, in the context of the Parsha, the Parsha is really trying to put forth a, a golden mean for us, that we can go too far to the left, too far to the right. We have to stay on the path that God has, in the image of the Torah, has created for us so that we can do what we can do as God's humble servants. You know, that's very interesting. You know, that, that language is in the Torah, Lo tasur asher small, back on chapter 17, verse 11. Don't veer from this to the right or to the left. I think that's a good way to, to, to summarize here. We, we are trying to carve out the path you know, it, 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 it certainly has uh, some broad uh, range here. Uh, and, and for that, you need different forms of leaders. You need the Shoftim and the Shotrin. You need the Melech. You need the Navi. You know, I, 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 we'll give an asterisk to, to the soothsayers in it because, you know, they're, they're the sideshow. <laughs> you, don't, you, you can't let them run your country, but, you know, you can certainly go to the fair for entertainment and get, get an <laughs> important job. All right. Anyway, with that, we want to just <clears throat> conclude and say to our friends at Machanerama and to uh, the people that have been broadcasting us for these last many, many weeks, thank you so much. Thank you for, for hosting us. Uh, on the Ramah Network, the Co-Ramah Network, where we have many, many dozens of, of, uh, of supporters and fans. We, 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 we so appreciate your tuning in to us. And thank you to all of our listeners and viewers who watch us from week to week. We, we are so humbled by your uh, continued uh, enjoyment of, of Parsha Talk, and we look forward to seeing you on another amazing Parsha next week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.